Please remain standing for the reading of the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 11 through 19. Again, God's holy and inspired word. From the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 7, beginning in verse 11. God's word. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to rise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses says, said nothing about the priest. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. On the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. As far as the reading of our Lord's word, may he bless it to us. So when you go to the store with your toddler, what's one thing that you're bound to say? Well, keep your hands off. You can look, but don't touch. And in some ways, we never really grow out of this. For when it comes to the desirable, the beautiful, the tasty, and the precious, we want to be close. We smell the cantaloupe in the produce section. We feel the clothes on the rack. We touch the glass in the jewelry store. And we stand close to the attractive guy or gal. The prized and the stunning attracts us like bees to almond blossoms. Thus, most valuables rest behind some version of a fence, whether it's a vault, a firewall, or a red sign warning. Access is strictly restricted to the treasured and the fancy. Some of the things that we want to get closest to sit behind a locked door, and the key will never be given to us. And we meet this same reality in our covenant life with God. For in our relationship with the Holy Lord, there are priceless blessings and gorgeous delights that we are barred and fenced off from, which is another reason that we are once again driven to our better mediator who holds all the keys for us. So we were just given a full anatomy of Melchizedek, the righteous regent, the prince of peace, and the enduring priest of the Most High God. And this detailed sketch was laid out to signify how Melchizedek's priesthood, and thus Christ, is loftier than Aaron's. Even Levi tithed to Melchizedek in the loins of Abraham to, to honor the superior priestly order. And yet, if you're casting a vote for the better candidate, it's helpful to know what is good in one and what's not so good in the other. Indeed, at times, negatives can thrust us into action more than positives. Besides, just because something is better, that doesn't necessarily make you leave the good that you have. Melchizedek may be a cut above, 
But if Levi is healthy, then why make the change? Thus, the author dives in now to exhibit for us how the Aaronic priesthood is a bit like visitors and fish. After a few days, they both start to smell. And he begins by setting out that the Levitical priesthood, what it could not do. Those Old Testament priests had many a talent, but but there was one thing that they were unable to do, namely perfection. Perfection was not achievable under the order of Aaron. Those Leviticals could not make perfect. But what is this perfection? For the Aaronic priests were adorned with impeccable vestments. They were blemish-free, totally law-keeping, and granted the highest status of holy. Holy and perfection are near synonyms. Thus, how or, uh, how could the most holy Leviticals be unable to perfect? Well, this is not our first taste of perfection in this epistle. And as you'll recall, the perfect belonged to heaven, and it was inaugurated in the new covenant. And most importantly, Jesus was perfected through suffering in order to be confirmed as our high priest. Yet there are three ingredients of protection as it relates to priesthood that seems to be fronted here. One, to perfect, is to apply true and ideal pardon. The perfect purifies one's conscience and removes from you all your sin and guilt for good. Two, the perfect imparts to you lasting and the impeachable status of holiness. The perfect priest actually transforms you into a holy thing. Three, perfection grants you a VIP access card to God's own throne with intimacy and being free from condemnation and wrath. So shorthand, perfection supplies forgiveness, holiness, and free access to God. And these are truly Uh, are touchable valuables. These are beauties that we need to cozy up to. Yet such perfection could not be supplied for you by the Aaronic priest. These ideal blessings, the Old Testament priest never truly communicated to the saints of old. And this is a serious blotch on the shiny armor of Levi. This is kind of like a doctor who cannot write you a script for medicine. Not exactly a doctor on the top of your list. But there's another truth about the Levitical priesthood connected to this one. Under or under the priesthood, the people received the law. Or better, the people were legally constituted by the priesthood. That is, upon the basis of their Aaronic priesthood and mediation, the law covenant of Sinai was ratified and consecrated. Israel became the people of Yahweh upon this priestly foundation. And this reflects what we read in Exodus 24. That is, during the covenant ratification ceremony in that chapter, it was only Aaron and his sons who got to come up to the holy mountain. They represented the people and mediated for them in order to seal the covenant. That covenant relationship between God and Israel could only be affected through a mediator, a go-between, 
to intercede for the people with God and to typify God to the people. This means that the Levitical priesthood was not some tangent or extra add-on to the covenant. Rather, the law and the priesthood are intimately intertwined. More so, the law rested upon the priesthood. That is, without the priesthood, there is no law and no law covenant of Moses. Yet with this relationship settled and the priest's inability to provide perfection, a question is now posed to us. Why need another priesthood to rise after the order of Melchizedek? If perfection came by Levi, why another priest? Well, of course, Aaron couldn't give perfection, so another priesthood was needed. A new priest assumes that something's lacking in the old one. For if it's not broken, then the Lord doesn't fix it. But if a repair is issued, then something is broken. Thus, the very existence of another priesthood, that of Melchizedek, reveals the insufficiency of the old order. And for your average Hebrew of the first century, this would be a bitter pill to swallow. Sure, individual priests, they could be corrupt, but the institution of the priesthood itself, this dated back to Sinai. It was handed down from heaven. How could such an ancient blessing of God be lacking, inferior, or fall short? This steps on pious toes. This is like telling an American that football is flawed and it all needs to be replaced with soccer. People just stare at you like you're crazy. And the author dishes up another scoop of insanity. For he says, when there's a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law, too. you got to be kidding. The priesthood is changing, and so the law as well? This is enough to get you canceled or worse. Now, this is an outworking of what was just said, that the law was founded upon the priesthood. But if the priesthood is the foundation and the law is the edifice on top, then it's impossible impossible to replace the foundation and not the house. Therefore, for us in the new covenant, we have two major changes from our brothers and sisters in the old covenant. We have a different priesthood and we are not under the law. We're not under the Mosaic Covenant as they were. And yet, before the significance of this double change is teased out, we're given more evidence to prove it. And this evidence supports the change in priesthood that is the foundation. As he goes on, the one about whom we've been talking about is of another tribe. It's beyond obvious that our Lord hailed from the tribe of Judah. Or more literally, using messianic imagery, the Lord rose out of Judah like the morning star at dawn. Jesus was not just another Judean boy, but he was the messianic sunrise long promised by the prophets. Yet when it comes to a Judean, an altar service, these are two strangers that have never met. No man of Judah ever put on the ephod to mount the altar? 
Moses wrote not a jot or a tittle, not a consonant or a vowel about a priest coming out of the tribe of Judah. Now, sure, there are a few places in history where David and Solomon stood up front at the altar, but they never donned the ironic turban. Moreover, such stories belong to the messy vicissitudes of history. Anomalies and irregularities spring up in fallen history, but the law, it was penned and prepared by Moses to be pristine and orderly. In the law, everything has a place and each thing is in its place. And under the oversight of Moses, nothing in the law suggests a priest coming from Judah. The law doesn't even imagine a Judean priest. Though despite Moses' silence, it's evident that Jesus came from Judah, and it's further obvious that he rose in the likeness of Melchizedek. Two solid and indisputable facts are centered for us. Jesus is Judean, and he's Melchizedekian. Hence, it is unassailable that a new priest has risen, and the change in priesthood has been confirmed from heaven. But a third truth is now interjected into these two. Jesus became a priest, not by bodily descent, but due to the power of his indestructible life. Our Lord didn't obtain the priestly office by a long genealogy. His ordination wasn't based on some law that mandated only sons from this family tree could serve. The Mosaic law was clear. Only the unblemished sons of Aaron were eligible in order to inherit the career of the priesthood. From Aaron to Caiaphas, this was how every last Aaronic son entered the temple service. But not Jesus. A law about physical descent didn't anoint him priest. Instead, the priestly mantle came to him by the power of his indestructible life. Because Jesus lived forever, he's qualified to be a priest forever. If the job qualifications read, you must never die, then only one who lives forever can be hired. So our Lord got the job by the strength of his imperishable life. Now, this indestructible life seems to encompass both natures of our Lord. Namely, Christ's life endures forever because he's the Son of God, true God. This is why he cites for us again Psalm 110.4, which connects back to verse 3, how Melchizedek had no beginning and no end of days in order to resemble the Son of God. Jesus, then, has an infinite life to become a forever priest because he's God incarnate, very God of very God. Yet, indestructible also hints at something that faced demolition and yet survived. An indestructible entity felt the wrecking ball of death, but it didn't succumb. Hence, this indestructible existence points to Christ's resurrection. That is, Jesus tasted the hemlock of death. He was laid in the darkness of the tomb. He submitted for a time to the death monster. 
But death had no lasting power over him. By his righteousness, Jesus shattered the bars of death. The poison of hell coursed through the arteries of our Lord upon the cross, but his life didn't crumble into ashes and dust. Instead, Christ stepped out of the tomb in the glory of the resurrection. Death did not rot his body with maggots, but it refined his flesh into a new glorified body. Thus, our Savior became our high priest by a doubly indestructible life, by being divine and by being resurrected in righteousness. And with a new priest in the house, with a new order of priesthood in the office, the former commandment is set aside. With Jesus at the right hand, the commandment is annulled and nullified, for the law made nothing perfect. The change in priesthood certifies, then, a change in the law. And with this, we are taken back to that relationship between the the priesthood and the Mosaic law. The priesthood is the foundation, and the law is the house on top of it. To alter the foundation necessarily remodels the building. And so Christ's new priesthood, with it, the law is nullified. Indeed, the author here doesn't say that the law merely underwent plastic surgery, a nip and a tuck, a facelift and some Botox. This is not what happened to the law. Rather, the law is legally nullified. The law was retired. It turned in its badge and gun. The author, the, the authority of the law was stripped from it, and it ceased to be the operative system. This is strong language. But what does it fully mean? Well, the law, the Old Testament law, is still part of God's inspired word. Yes, the law is still God's truth. Its doctrine is valid and binding for us. The law still testifies to and typifies the work of Jesus. Likewise, many of the moral principles of the law continue to be authoritative for our faith and life. This law nullification doesn't cut the books of Moses out of our Bibles, not at all. Rather, the law is annulled as the administration for purification and access to God. The law governed all the means and methods for the people to be sanctified and draw near to the Lord. In the Old Testament, if you wanted forgiveness, if you wanted to go to worship, If you sought to be close to the Almighty, the law stipulated every little detail and requirement to make it happen. Under the law, if you wanted to be with God in his holy house, then you had to bring a sacrifice and to be in a state of purity. If you had just buried a loved one, if you had had a baby, if you threw a dead mouse out of your pantry... Touching these things made you impure, and the law forbade you from worship until you completed the necessary washings and waitings. And all of these things are what have been annulled by our Savior. As the standard operative system of sanctity, the law has been nullified. But why put these out to pasture? 
because these regulations of the law were weak and useless. The law perfected nothing. That is, the law didn't actually accomplish what it correctly demanded as necessary. The law said that you had to be forgiven, which is true. But by animal blood, the law could not affect such forgiveness. The law correctly insisted that purity was required, but its washings were unable to make you honestly pure. The law rightly registered that only a priest could be near to God, but the law was incapable of making lay Israelites priests. Thus, the law was true and accurate about how holiness demanded pristine purity in order to come close to the Lord. But the law was frail and incompetent to produce this sanctity in its worshipers. The law posted the correct price for entry, but it gave you no money to purchase the ticket. It published the legal needs required for you, and yet it offered you no aid to meet those needs. Therefore, Jesus annulled the legal demands of the law, and he introduced a better hope. Christ didn't take uh, didn't take away the law and then leave a vacancy. Rather, he replaced the old with something new. Just as he canceled the Aaronic priesthood and installed his Melchizedek priesthood, so Jesus stripped off the law and put on a better hope. This superior hope replaced the weak law, which means that this hope can do what the law never could. This hope is powerful to perfect you where the law was useless to perfect you. This hope can yield in you um, and do for you what the law was incapable of. Hence, by this hope, you are forgiven forever. You are made pure in the deepest region of your heart and soul. And this hope transforms you into being holy. Now, of course, this hope links back to the end of chapter 6, where a hope was Christ himself, who entered behind the heavenly curtain for our atonement and redemption. The blood and righteousness of Christ is the infinite power within this better hope that does actually perfect you. Yet this better hope particularly makes us into, as he says in verse 19, those who can draw near to God. And this phrase, to draw near to God, is the Old Testament's idiom for the Levitical priest. Only the priest could come close to the altar. The the Aaronic priest alone could enter the sanctum to see the menorah and the table of showbread. The law kept the lay Israelites at a distance. The law defined the priest alone as those who could draw near. Hence, this phrase is Hebrews' way of saying that the hope of Christ actually makes you priest. Yes, this verse sets forth the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers in all its wonder and delight. 
In Christ, you get to tread where only the ironic priest got to tread in the old. More so, you actually enter a better priest, a better place than the priest of old. Aaron and his sons had access to an earthly model, a type. But you pass into the heaven itself by the Holy Spirit. The tabernacle was a replica of heaven, an appetizer of heaven on earth. But in Jesus, you come to heaven itself in Lord's Day worship. And in this way, our Lord is the great destroyer of fences. In the Old Testament, within the sanctum of the tabernacle, were found the most beautiful and precious desires of faith. To see the menorah of God's shining face, to smell the sweet smoke of incense, to be so close to God that you could feel his presence, this was all housed in the tabernacle sanctum. But these highest goods were all locked up by a series of fences, each with deadly warnings. In order to enter the outer gate of the tabernacle, you had to be pure. And if not, you died. To approach the altar, you had to bring a sacrifice. And if you didn't, you died. As a lay Israelite, the tabernacle was forever locked to you. You couldn't go inside the tabernacle. You couldn't touch any of the holy things. You couldn't even see the holy furniture within the tabernacle. The very sight of the holy slayed you on the spot. This was the legal system of the law that locked you out from the greatest spiritual blessings. And yet Jesus has opened all these doors for you. He has torn down these fences to give you free and intimate access to God himself. Jesus perfected you by grace, which the law could never do. Christ In Christ, you are perfectly forgiven. By his blood, you are actually made holy. And through Jesus, you have an access card to God to be near to him for all comfort and mercy 24-7. Yes, the priesthood of Christ makes certain that all your prayers reach the very ears of God in heaven. In Christ, you get to enjoy all the spiritual riches of glory. You get to taste of the heavenly gift. You get to touch the everlasting blessings. And you get to be forever close to your beloved Father and your perfect Savior, Jesus Christ. In this life and perfectly in heaven forever. Thus, praise the Lord for the change in priesthood and the annulment of the law. And may all glory then be to the Son and the Father who sent him for this better hope that allows us to be perfected and draw near to God. Now in Lord's Day worship and forever in heaven. Amen. Let's pray.